Hey, before we get going, would you like exclusive pod episodes, regular newsletters, discounts from brands we love, incredible keynote speeches, and uplifting high-performance boosts? If you'd love that and so much more, then go to thehighperformancepodcast.com, join our members club, The High Performance Circle, and you will get access to some amazing content. That's thehighperformancepodcast.com to become a member of The High Performance Circle. This is the High Performance Podcast, our gift to you every single week for free. This is the show that turns the lived experiences of the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. So for the next hour, just sit back and allow the greatest leaders, thinkers, sports stars, entertainers and entrepreneurs on the planet to be your teacher. Today is a good one. Here's what's in store. Well, the thing about those fear systems that I was telling you about, they're they're fully developed in the unborn child. So before some of the physical attributes of a, of a human being are f- fully functional, the fear system's fully functional, right? So we're primed for fear, we're wired for fear. Fear is a lazy way to motivate. Fear is a short-term way to motivate and the cost is too high, you know, because then you're walking around with, with the terror of doing it next time. You know, so relationships take us a while to build because we don't actually connect fully as ourselves. You know, there's lots of other reasons, but I'm I'm honing in on that that piece of it. You know, mostly we're in some kind of performative mode, some kind of performance when we're in a relationship. It can go on for months. It can go on forever in families and, you know, where you show only a part of you. Soulfulness of care of the soul, as I think of it, uh, is allowing us to be fully human in the pursuit of those incredible goals, the the pursuit of the kind of life that we'll be happy with. If we try and make it more pedestrian, colder, more formal, more industrialised, more engineered, and we leave out that stuff, we're working with half of what a human being is. And if we want to find real excellence, surely we have to work with the whole thing. This was a really interesting conversation. It's time for us to maybe think about redefining how we see success. I think we see success and achievement in a really linear way. And we do it the same on this podcast. You know, sometimes if someone comes on and says, I I won the Premier League or I won an Olympic gold medal, we can absolutely see the high performance. There's no doubting it. There's no questioning it. But what about when we get a communicator or a business person? What about those people? How do we define success for them? How do you define it in your life? How do you work out whether you've had a good or a bad day or good or a bad week? Maybe the best thinking that we can do is rethinking. So welcome to a really fascinating chat with Pippa Grange. It may well be that you don't recognise the name and you don't know what she's done. Over the next hour, though, you're going to realise what a smart, well-thought-out person she is. And she has genuinely brilliant learnings for your life. So if you want to get closer to high performance, stick around for the next hour or so. Our chat with Pippa Grange comes next. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. 
LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. If we feel we have one key role in bringing you high performance, it's access, access to people, access to minds, access to understanding. And we believe access to today's guest will genuinely help to transform the life that you live. You're about to hear from someone who was described as the doctor who transformed the England football team. Well, that's what the papers said. But this person is so much more than just that headline. She's a lady who wants to transform our definition of winning. She wants to rewire our relationship with fear and she wants to equip us to be able to tackle shame. So how do we do it? Time to find out. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome the author of Fearless, How to Win Your Way in Work and Life, um, a book that was recommended to be by uh, Rangan Chatterjee, no less, from the Feel Better Live More podcast when I joined him just recently. He said, you need to talk to Pippa. So here we are. Pippa, welcome to High Performance. Thank you, Jake. That was a that was an introduction. <laughs> I hope I can live up to it. Well, listen, let's, uh, <laughs> let's get straight into it. We always start every interview with the same question for our guests. And I'm interested to get your take on this, bearing in mind your specialism. What do you believe to be high performance? Um, what a great starter question. Um, for me, high performance is a bit is about being able to fully live and experience your wins. So, or, or in fact, your, your uh, failures, your losses. So, you know, I, th- I think that we're performing at a high level when we don't have to be outside of ourselves pretending and we can actually be in the performance, whatever the outcome, and we can choose, we can access the performance that's available to us and we're not narrowed so much um, and distracted so much by things like fear and anxiety and, and worrying about not being good enough that we don't even experience the journey that we're on. So for me, that's a, a really important underpinning of high performance. I think all the things we know about the technical aspects of high performance, tick, great, but the difference for me is when people are actually present and you know in their performances rather than having to hang on by the fingernails till it's over or just be in yesterday or tomorrow so before we talk about how people can hopefully adopt this way of thinking pippa do you go through life seeing other people um living under these sort of blankets of fear and anxiety and self-criticism and you don't have that and you are sort of floating through happily looking down on us all thinking oh it's hard for you but it's great for me or or even after all the things you know all the research you've done all the books you've written and the people you've spoken to do you still have to work every single day to not be in that place absolutely the thing about it is it's not static you don't one of the mistakes we constantly make 
um, is, is this sort of idea that life's a self-improvement project and we'll get to this state and then it'll all be okay. It's never like that. It's, it's always dynamic and in flux. Something like fear is uh, we respond to fear. So, you know, there's a circumstance that might come up for you today or for me that makes me feel um, a prick of anxiety about not being good enough. Uh, the key is how much space we give it, how much room at the table and how well equipped we are to, to turn that volume down and to do it the way we would prefer to do it. You've touched on fear there, Pepper. One of the sources of fear, I've heard you speak about this before, is a scarcity mindset. Like we're scared to make ourselves, like fall in love because we don't feel there's enough love to go around or we're scared to give credit because we don't feel that, that there'll be enough credit for us. So Jake and I were talking before this interview of saying, what can we do? What advice can you give to us as interviewers to make this the best interview possible for you? That's a, another great question. You know, one thing I notice when I come into interviews like this or, or into sort of um, any kind of exchange, and especially when we're talking about high performance, is that people are people generally are trying to filter down to the thing, the recipe, the answer, the outcome. And, you know, a lot of my work is actually saying, can we be brave enough and vulnerable enough to not fix, to not know right away? Because usually when we get to that fix or that sort of quick outcome, we fix the wrong thing or we're, we're working in the superficial. And, you know, what I encourage people to do is just ground themselves a little bit, breathe a bit longer, get a bit deeper and then we're, then we're talking about the real stuff. We're talking about the, you know, the things that are experiential and embodied and that actually make a difference to us. Most times we've moved on with sort of a, a you know, half a solution. And, and, you know, so I would say maybe we can try and uh, stay present enough to get a bit deeper. Brilliant. One of the challenges then, Pippa, is that we have like, you know, let's say this is an hour-long episode, right? We really want to leave people at the end of this hour thinking, right, there's, there's genuine help for me that I've picked up in that last hour. So normally at the very end we go, what's your sort of one message for everyone listening to this podcast? But let's just do it now. Like if we really want to get to the good stuff here and we want to do it in the right kind of way, how would you like to begin? What's the message you would like to share to start this conversation for the people listening when it comes to this fear and this anxiety? What I would say is that um, I would like people to understand that they have loads more agency, loads more power and control over the amount of space that fear takes up in their life than they think they do. But the thing is, most kinds of fear, unless it's a fear you feel when you've driven too quick into a, you know, into a bend and you get that immediate sort of adrenaline rush, that'll dissipate when the circumstance goes away. But most other types of fear, particularly not good enough fear, does not go away on its own. So not only have we got the power to do something about it, um, you know, we actually have to intervene to create the kind of psychological space so that we can enjoy life and we can access the performance available in front of us. There's a really key distinction here, Pippa, that um, really fascinates me, but I think people need to understand it about in-the-moment fear and not good enough fear. Would you just explain that distinction? It all starts in the brain and in our evolution. And basically, we have two systems, what I call the old circuitry and the new circuitry in our brains. The old circuitry contains uh, the amygdala and the fear response system. That's been there forever in our human evolution. It's the thing that helps us 
survive. It's a thing that tells us that there's um, a threat on the horizon one way or another and that we need to respond to it quickly. Then at some point in our evolution, we got a, an upgrade and we got a prefrontal cortex that helps us work out the meaning of life and reason and be rational and, and choose and decide, you know, beyond instinct and, and reactivity and the survival mechanism. But basically what happened is that those two things don't operate at the same level. Not only did we not get a full upgrade, so we could be reasonable all the time, they don't operate at the same level and the fear system operates just a half second quicker than the frontal cortex, the reason system. And so it's this constant battle in us for who's in charge, who's in the driving seat, reason or, or fear, um, or reason or survival drive. So consequently, you know, what has happened over time, those two sort of, the, the central fears that have come from that amygdala, which are about being abandoned or dying, there, there are two big fears. We're going to be killed, we're not going to make it, or we're going to be abandoned and in contemporary society, maybe that feels more like we're going to be rejected. And so we've got in the moment fear, which I would describe as natural, organic, reasonable, definitely need it. If there is a threat, we have to respond, right? We don't want to live without fear. That's why it's called fearless, not fearless. We don't want to be fearless. We need some, right? But that's in the moment fear. But what's happened in our society and in our cultural response to society is that we've got really, that, that abandonment fear has, has sort of turned into something else. And we've got really worried, really anxious, really fearful about not being good enough. It's like a contemporary manifestation of, be, of being abandoned. And so we've got this stuff you need in the moment fear, and without it, you wouldn't respond adequately to protect yourself. You wouldn't predict, you wouldn't see down the road and make a good choice. But then we've got this stuff that's totally man-made. It's triggered naturally, but the, the way that we recycle it in our own minds and in our cultures is man-made. It's about avoiding failure. It's about never looking bad. It's about not being ostracized, not being shamed. Shamed is the central material of that not good enough fear. And, you know, it's, for me, it is present in so many of our lives in a, a way that is just a thief. It takes all the space for other experiences, particularly the positive experiences like joy or contentment. And we don't need so much of it. And we have got the capability to turn that down. I think this is really interesting because I think if you start talking about fear, people do see it in a certain way i don't think they see it fear as well what will my friends think when they come around in the house it's a mess what will the teacher think when my son or daughter goes to school with dirty shoes what will my parents think when i invite them over for a dinner party and the food's not very good and it's only now when i start reimagining fear as this kind of daily shame if you like about letting other people down and letting ourselves down that you you get an idea that it is, like, I would have said I'm not a fearful person. I'm now thinking like every single day I'm doing things purely so that other people think I've done a good job on that, you know? Right. I, I, make my, I remember now I made my daughter's snack today and I looked at it and thought, well, is the teacher going to think that's healthy? Or are they going to judge the fact I put hula hoops in there? Like, what use is that? Well, some of it is useful, right? Some of it um, can orient us towards improvement and, and uh, achieving a goal in life. But a lot of it is just waste material. It needs to go in the bin. It's not helpful. And you think how often it, it actually takes up your time. 
So the organic fear, the in the moment fear, it's actually when something is really threatening you now. Whereas when you're talking about what will the teacher think or, or you know, how often we predict something that might be a bit shame, shaming or embarrassing even, you know, we're always in the future or we're always in the past. Neither of those things are real, but they take up most of our time. So when does this start to develop? So if we think of it in, in relation to children right the way through to adulthood, Pip, when does this fear of not being good enough start to take root in, and then shape our, our perceptions of the world? Well, the thing about those fear systems that I was telling you about, they're, they're developed in, they're fully developed in the unborn child. So before some of the physical attributes of a, of a human being are f- fully functional, the fear system's fully functional, right? So we're primed for fear, we're wired for fear, which is why we have to culturally manage it and personally manage it. So then you have this infant child who is dependent on other people for longer than most other mammals, right? And in that period of, let's say, nine months or however long after a child's born, um, they are utterly dependent on signals and um, relationship and connection to another human being. That's where it starts, right? So if that child is feeling safe and loved, they are going to develop a starting view of the world that is about safety and love, right? If it's the opposite of that and they feel need and want and fear, fear is provoked all the time, then that's their starting view. But then, you you, you know, we go through this sort of um, cultural journey of life that is a journey of social conditioning and reinforcement on top of our, um, our base wiring. We've always got both going on. It's not an either-or proposition, but... So, so then, you know, the kind of messages that you get as a child, kind of messages that you get from um, uh, key people in your life, which is generally parent, guardian, but then teachers, coaches, etc., are so important in helping you know how to respond to fear well and helping reduce the burden of shame. So can you give us an example of that then, Pippa, about, uh, about those kind of messages that either alleviate or, or reinforce? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, something I use sometimes when I'm talking about this with coaches or athletes or businesses is, um, have you seen uh, the movie Whiplash? Have either of you seen the movie Whiplash? You, no. It's a must watch. Does that ruin the story? Yeah, mm, <laughs> yeah. a little bit. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I um, compare Dead Poets Society and Robin Williams's kind of um, confident uh, uh, encouragement, pushing of, of these young men in his class to do more, to, to get a hold of it, to be brave, to step forward and to find passion. Um, and, and, you know, it's in response to their error or to their apathy, right? He responds that way. That's a great example of messaging to lower and diminish fear and to lift possibility. Then in Whiplash, there's a scene where the, um, uh, the uh, student is drumming. It's a, it's a, a scene of a, a music instructor. And the way that the music instructor responds to the student who's drumming is the antithesis of good coaching around making, making it possible for somebody to win. He's belittling, he's shaming, he's personal, he's aggressive. 
um, it's in front of everybody and he diminishes that person. And so the only thing <clears throat> that that person has to hang on to then is fear to get through. And this leads to some of the success myths that we have that fear is necessary to motivate. Fear is a lazy way to motivate. Fear is a short-term way to motivate and the cost is too high, you know, because then you're walking around with, with the terror of doing it next time. So can I jump in there then, Pippa, and ask you around that, like, in, and this is more in relation to, say, John Cotter, the Harvard psychologist that talks around uh, the burning platform to, to inspire people to change or to adopt a new way of doing it. Which, to me, I mean, the origins of that phrase comes from the Piper Alpha oil rig disaster, which always seems quite a crass way of trying to motivate people. But how does that fit then? Because what you're saying makes sense. But in sort of academia, for example, there's still that view that we have to frighten people that if you don't change, you're staying on that burning platform. There's two things I'll say here, Damien. One is that we are always in a process of evolution. We do have to change all the time. And there's a burden that goes with that. My point is just that shame's not very useful as a companion to change, right? Motivation doesn't have to come from shame or fear. Motivation is like, I need a new niche. <laughs> I need to get off this platform because it's burning and onto another one. We don't actually need the weight of fear that we carry around and we definitely don't need shame alongside it, right? So that, that's one point. The other thing is there is enough fear. It's naturally generating, you know, life is not smooth and, um, you know, always rational. Life's chaotic. And we, we're faced with fearful situations all the time. My point is, how good are we at turning down what's necessary? How much is enough? And then what is extra that we just really don't need to bring with us? So it's going to happen. We've already got enough, though. Are there people who are addicted to the feeling of being fearful? I mean, I, I think my wife gets annoyed at me because I talk about her on this podcast all the time. She's quite a good case study for lots of our conversations. <laughs> and she says, oh, you're talking about me again. Someone spoke to me in the supermarket about what you'd said. So I remember her. I'll explain a bit more in just a second. But we were going on holiday, which often gives her an, an anxious period before we go, like all the fears that could possibly go wrong. And then one year she wasn't worrying much. And she said to me, I'm worried. I haven't worried enough. Almost like the worry is going to be the thing that stops the bad thing from happening. It, is that something that people suffer with? Yeah, absolutely. It, you know, she's not on her own there at all. But it's, you know, the, there's part of that that's habit um, and the mental habit of what you do when you're getting ready. So you see this in uh, dressing rooms in every sport in the world. You look around and there's some people who completely occupy themselves with something. They need to be occupied before a performance. That's part of their getting ready. So sometimes like worrying about the details of a flight and whether your cab's on time and all the rest of it is occupying yourself while you're getting ready for a performance. And others just have their tunes on and they're sitting on their bench and they seem to be really chilled out, right? But that's their way of getting ready. There isn't like a one size fits all. So quite often what we see is the habit of occupying your mind because you're getting ready or you're kind of excited and excited feels a bit you know, can feel stressful a bit like um, worry. So th there's that part of it. It's just whether it is your starting view of something. I'm very close to somebody who worries constantly. 
And, um, you know, that's their first go-to way of assessing a situation. And consequently, it's very hard for them to access a good possibility because they've used all of their attention, which is finite. We've only got one bucket of attention to, to use. Um, they've used all of their attention on what might go wrong. And then, therefore, for me, there is nothing left to actually use on good possibility. What do you do to help them then, Pippa? Because this, again, talking about Harriet, you know, she will fear something. And my technique is to say to her, listen, this is your brain playing a trick. This is your brain writing a story in the future about a bad thing. Why don't we try and write a really positive story and choose to believe that as well? And when you say that in the moment, in the two or three minutes afterwards, it feels like, yeah, okay, let's do that. But the next time there's another challenge, she doesn't go to that, the place that I've spoken about. She goes straight back to the place that she's been going to for, for 40 years, really. So what can we do with people who suffer as your friend does or have the thoughts that my wife does? What can we do to get them to, to transform and to shift so that they naturally go somewhere else? The first thing I would ask is, is it suffering for her? Is she suffering when she's getting airporty, as I would call that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I would say she's, yeah, yeah, I, th I think she, yeah. It just occupies her brain, you Right, know? that's a different thing, though. Like, if it's occupying her brain, is she suffering? That's that's like a, we should have Harriet on here, by the way. <laughs> not, not, yeah. Not what, so when you say suffering, what? how do you mean? <laughs> well, it, you know, so it might, you might be observing that behaviour and feeling like if that were you, you'd be stressed out. But, you know, maybe she's not actually experiencing that stress very negatively. She's just occupied by it. The other thing I would say, though, Jake, is can you think of it as an energy? Instead of trying to fix that problem right there and then, right when it's happening, can you think of it as an energy? What kind of energy has she got at that period of time and how does she want to expend it? Maybe then put on a tune and let her dance that out for a second before she's, you know, or let her express it in a different way because there's an energy there. Sometimes we want to always... To take the person right back to super calm. And super calm's not where they want to be right at that moment. And it's okay. It's dynamic, right? It's just the, the, the distinction is, is there suffering in it? That's great advice. And also, I think it probably doesn't help that I'm there going, look at me, I'm relaxed, everything will be fine. That probably doesn't help. <laughs> and she's probably thinking, can you get on with it and get a move on? <laughs> can I give you another different scenario? So we spoke about... Um, nurture and upbringing and making our children feel safe and secure so we've i think we've done that with our children but almost out of nowhere our daughter has become obsessed about the dogs getting lost when you open the door to let them out to go to the toilet go with them go with them where are they if they haven't if they haven't come back from the garden within two minutes she's straight out the garden and when we go on a walk she's looking for them all the time and she's now started counting how many of us are, just to make sure everyone's there and that's kind of come out of nowhere and that's an interesting one for me because i I sometimes look at anxious kids and I think, parents must have filled you with fear. Yet I kind of feel like we've tried to parent in a way that we haven't done that at all. And this, this has suddenly happened. She's eight years old. There'll be lots of parents listening to this who maybe have a similar thing where they look at their child and they just see a little nugget of anxiety. Should we be worried about it? Should we try and get rid of it? Should we accept that, as you say, nothing's forever and maybe this is a period in, in her development? What do you think? 
you know, sometimes we think of kids as these little vessels that are, um, you know, we fill up with good stuff and there will be this outcome or we, you know, we mess up now and then and there will be a negative outcome. They're, they're way more complex than that in, in some respects. And, you know, whatever's going on in her little unconscious that is making her just feel such a deep um, attachment and love for the dog that she doesn't want to lose it you know, is, is part of just her own evolution. I just really would not worry about that. The trick is to reassure her in the moment and to do that in conversation with her rather than, again, trying to put her back in a state that you think would feel right. So if I say the dogs are fine, calm down, that's not very well, useful. That's, that's just a piece of information to her. It's not necessarily helping her, um, you know, in the moment. It, it might be more like you know, to engage her in a conversation about what are you thinking about when you're, when you're worried that he's, you know, he or she is, is out for so long and, and just let her express it, let her express her emotion and process it therefore and leave it with her, you know, and just to say, you know, sometimes you might do something like help her have a mechanism for feeling okay with it, you know, put an egg timer on and say, let's see how long he's gone for an adventure this time. Or how will we let him know that when he's ready to come home, you know, we're here for him and we love him and he's welcome home. You know, is the dog biscuit on the step or something. So helping her feel not afraid of a negative outcome, but to be in it and stay in it without trying to fix it or change her state. That's really the that's really where the, the richness is in helping her manage a situation that for whatever reason is proving anxious for her. So can I take you back to Jake's first question, Pippa, when like you used a lovely phrase there when you were talking about Harriet's anxiety and you spoke about, uh, you described it as an energy. How does that energy express itself? And that to me was evocative of the, uh, the phrase from the great boxing coach, Custer Marto, that when he was working with fighters used to describe fear as a, fi- uh, as like fire that you can either use it as an energy to heat your house or you can allow it to consume your house and burn it down. And I quite like this idea that you have of sort of applying a narrative to fear. So once you've, so if we live within that moment, you almost characterize it or describe it, whether it's as an energy or a fire or in any other way. Would you explain the benefits of being able to do that? Well, the first benefit is that before it's a narrative, it's an image. I use image a lot. So if you think about the image of fire, you know, what's happened as soon as you've brought that image to life is that you've come back into the moment and into the embodied experience of what's going on for you. So, you know, if I say to you, okay, Damien, what would, think, think of a time that was like a really anxiety provoking performance for you. What did it feel like? What did it feel like in your body? If it were like something, as he described with fire, what would it be like? What was the energy of it? What was the temperature or texture of it? And straight away, using that visual image has brought somebody back into their own body, into their experience. And and so they're working with the stuff that's real for them at that point. And then it's like, okay, so if, if 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 there's too much fire and the fire's consuming the house, what do we need? So instead of it becoming a prescriptive, always get calm or always get, you know, into a, a space that is more relaxed, sometimes that's not actually the right energetic move for a person and a performer. Sometimes it's like, you know what, I just, I just need to reuse the fire in a different way rather than douse the fire. Can you give us 
say, a specific example of where you've used those kind of questions that have had an effect on a performer that's allowed them to, to harness that energy? Yeah, sure. Uh, um, I can remember working with an athlete um, for a period of time, and um, what would happen for him was that in the in the change room, in the, in the uh, dressing room, he would feel he was really somatic as an athlete, which means that he would feel his fear, his anxiety, very much in his body. So you know, it wasn't he, it, he wasn't worrying around mentally, but he'd feel really heavy and flat. So you know, getting him to sort of say, "What? Well, tell me what that feels like in your legs." You know, and him saying it's like they're, they're like stuck, you know, like I'm stuck in clay. I can't move. It's like lead kind of feeling in my legs. I'm like, what would we do about clay legs, clay stuck legs? And taking him into a, an activity, a visualization that was about actually melting away or digging out that clay. And then, you know, what helped the kind of energy that he did want, which was because that's also important. What do you want to feel like now? Instead of thinking, I should always be calm, what do you want to feel like now? Because sometimes it's quite up or it's quite elevated and it's quite sort of adrenal and excited for a performer. It's like, what would give you that? And for him, it was music. So it's like, you know, well, there's a couple of tunes that really lift me. It's like, okay, let's do a visualization where we dig out the clay and get you standing on firm ground. What does that ground feel like? What does the energy in your legs feel like now? And, and there's a theme tune for it. So then when he's starting to feel, you know, in the, in the tunnel or, you know, on the way out, when he's starting to feel like he's heavy, he comes back to that visualization of the energy moving through his legs and his hips and his spine in the right way. He can access that. And he's got a theme tune in his head for it too. So do you think people can do this for themselves? Or do you think that it's necessary to, to have somebody ask these questions for, of them? Absolutely, you can. Absolutely. The, th the thing about imagination is it's vast, it's endless, it's, you know, so rich. I bet you at the end of this conversation, you'll both be thinking about the images for when you feel you've had moments of anxiety or when you felt amazing before performances. What was the physical feel, temperature, texture of those things? Everybody has that kind of imagination available to them. And that example might not be the right example for everyone, but you have endless possibilities in your own imagination which is why I just really like this stuff you don't you don't need an expert to come and tell you this you just have to tune into you and what's going on and respond from your own wisdom this is interesting for me Pippa because I think that um I basically live in the day okay I don't I'm not even sure what I'm actually doing tomorrow because I just don't find it very useful to know so therefore if something bad is around the corner I'm pretty much blind to it which I like however I am a total hypochondriac so if there's a slight issue with me it's the end of the world if one of my kids has got an aching leg it isn't just growing pains it's some you know horrendous childhood disease which is going to cause us a problem and it keeps me awake at night and it's the first thing I think about when I wake up in the morning and this isn't every day obviously but when there's a tiny little a tiny little thing it just dominates my thoughts and I go I sort of catastrophize about it speaking to people it seems quite common what advice would you give for people like me or people in a similar situation who feel like loads of their areas of their life they're really in control of, but there was just one thing that, and I'm now 43 and I haven't yet managed to deal with this. And I'm kind of a bit like I mentioned earlier, I think I get a bit of comfort out of worrying about it because at least I'm, you know, thinking of all the possible potential disasters. And so therefore I'll attack them head on. You know, if we go back to sort of the start of the conversation about um, 
going a bit deeper and not fixing or prescribing or trying to allow yourself an impression of you that didn't have to have everything right, maybe a less perfect uh, impression of yourself, I would say again, is there suffering in it? And what's the energy of it? And when that happens and you're thinking, oh my God, it's definitely thrombosis or, you know, whatever else, like what helps you ground and check in on your energy and then say, was there anything in those fearful thoughts that was useful or can, can some of that go in the bin? We have to recycle a lot when it comes to fear. Got to compost a lot. It's like, yeah, not useful, not real, chuck it out. No good, that's bin, that's rubbish bin material. Shall I tell you what I have found that's been useful is like that I know that I do this. So therefore I kind of learn to ignore it in some ways. Or I've taught myself to ignore it because I'm like, yeah, but this is you thinking this. Therefore it probably is nothing. And, and I kind of, I try and give things a mark out of 10. So if Florence has an aching foot, I say, right, what is the actual mark out of 10 that this is going to be something bad? It's probably a one. And then I'll give a mark out of 10 to what's the mark out of 10 that we're going to have a great evening on Friday when the kids are here and we're going to have dinner and play some board games. I can give that a 10 because I know we're going to have fun. So I, I find that that is quite a useful tool for me. Yeah, but, um, it's, it's one of the sort of in the moment fear tools. So, you know, um, is, is rationalization. Is, is, there's, there's distraction processing, which might be something like breathing and, or, you know, the exercise I talked to you about before with the clay feet or rationalization is another one of kind of like a score out of 10 how real is this okay this is just me having a moment or I've just got high energy on this or I'm you know I've got a a worry narrative running here I've got an old tape running here that each of those three things are ways to deal with that in the moment fear but you know it's that stuff is we can always deal with that from a technique perspective but that's the stuff that pops up now and then more pervasive is the not good enough fear of, you know, that you talked about before with the lunchbox scenario. It's kind of like that's the stuff that's, that takes up more of our time, energy and day. We can, we can generally come back to the moment and process, rationalize or distract. So for the pervasive fear that floats under the surface, not necessarily one way you can just apportion an energy and change it. That is just constantly there. Yeah. This not good. This, I suppose, shame. You've described it as shame being the deadliest of our emotions, haven't you? Yeah. Well, the really important thing to um, distinguish here is that techniques will work for in the moment fear and for those anxieties and worries that we've been talking about. When we're talking about not good enough fear, it's a perspective change. It will not be solved by a technique. And this is what annoys me so much in the kind of self-help field sometimes. We were just desperate for a prescription for everything. This is pervasive and real and big in our lives. And what I'm hoping to do is help people see that you can change the story. You can change the underpinning story. You can stay long enough and see where not good enough fear is showing up for you. Then face what is costing you in your life and start to replace it. But you cannot do that in 20 minutes. That is a, if you make that decision today that you want to um, really have a look at the, where not good enough fear is showing up in your life, that's going to take you a while. Everybody's journey is different. Certainly, um, and it will keep coming up, but you get better and better and better at managing the volume that's there, managing how much and how, how you can respond. How do we start? So you start by, by seeing it. You start by seeing it. So if I say to you, 
okay, let's have a look at really the places where the not good enough fear is showing up in your life. You know, where, where are you most likely to feel that? You know, so I did a, an exercise with my team this morning. We went for dinner last night and we were talking about um, human expression and how, you know, you can be so confident in one area and then another area. Like you're really anxious about expressing yourself in a, just a human way. And we we're talking about singing. And we're saying, you know, I'd rather stick pins in my eyes and sing on a stage somewhere in front of people. Why? Because I'd be shamed for not being good at it. You know, that's the narrative in my mind. I wouldn't be good at it. So we did an exercise this morning of like everybody on, on our WhatsApp channel had to put a song on. And, um, you know, they ranged in quality significantly. It wasn't the point. The point was the expression of, you know, your, our just common humanity. We're just expressing but what happened for me physically when I put my song on was that I, I really felt it in my body. I felt really, ugh, you know, I could feel that anxiety all over my, you know, the weight in my gut and in my chest and my throat. I could feel that anxiety because it was, I'm definitely not good at that, <laughs> you know. See, because I, I was going to ask that, Pippa, that is that, the, is there almost like a hidden word there? So like when we, like there's that famous study where, a group of five-year-old children were asked who can draw and everyone put, every child puts a hand up. And then at 18, the same group were asked and only 5% put the hand up because they've added the word who can draw well or who can draw good or who is an excellent drawer in. And that's the internal, and that's almost like the hidden part of the question that we apply. Yeah. And we wouldn't even need to add the word excellent, well, good. But we'd already have interpreted that from the culture that we live in, where, you know, we absolutely hero, elite, excellent, etc. Um, and we feel that there's something wrong if we don't achieve that benchmark in all areas. And what that does is shut down our human expression. You know, so, so back to your question, Jake, like first see it, first notice. I'm like, oh, I've still got some shame about expressing myself in different ways. Okay. What does that cost me? Where don't I raise my voice that I might like to? You know, it's just a metaphor in, in, to share with you, but that where does it really show up? You know, so I'm confident coming onto this medium with you talking in this way, but if we were on TV and there were lots of people looking at me, I would feel less confident, right? I would have more potential for not good enough. Show up, oh, I can see it. So first notice where it actually is for you and what's the story under that. And then start thinking about what does it cost you? Because, you know, in your brilliant human potential, your expansive possibilities of who you are, this will get in the way. And we talk about performance as if it's this kind of narrow channel to good that looks a particular way. It's so expansive. It's so massive you know, the human brilliance is so massive. And then once you've done that, and only then you start thinking about how will I replace that? And the things that I talk about with replacing, as you would have read in the book, are around, you know, sense of purpose and meaning. Probably the most powerful part of that is relationships and um, real connection, community, like the kind of relationships and quality that you have that allow you to turn down fear. And there's a number of other sort of options in there, as you know. So when we talk about relationships, then, Pippa, I, I, again, you referenced this fear of abandonment uh, early on that is almost hardwired into our thinking. 
What would you say is the quickest uh, or the most effective way to build relationships that are right for us? Mm-hmm. I love that you swapped quickest for most effective there, Damien. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think the best option is to show up as you as best as you can. You know, so relationships take us a while to build because we don't actually connect fully as ourselves. You know, there's lots of other reasons, but I'm, I'm honing in on that that piece of it. You know, mostly we're in a, some kind of performative mode, some kind of performance when we're in a relationship. It can go on for months. It can go on forever in families and, you know, where you show only a part of you or in work relationships you only show a part of you and it doesn't mean a full expose of who you are and everything you feel to leave you in a massively vulnerable spot all the time but it's like what stops me actually just showing up as me how can I take off the mask and show up as me and when you do that of course because of the energy of exchange in relationships the other person is so much more inclined to do it as well and that's that you know, mysterious, erroneous little thing we call trust, um, that gets built much more quickly and the depth of relationship opens up. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, look, as you know, in high performance, we love to highlight businesses doing things a better way. That's why we're proud to partner today with Mint Mobile. And when I found Mint Mobile... I had to share it with you. They've ditched retail stores and all the overhead costs and passed those savings on to you. Right now, Mint Mobile has wireless plans starting at $15 a month. That's unlimited talk and text plus data for $15 a month. And for me, those numbers are fantastic. I've been paying way more than that for my whole life. So if you hate your phone bill, Mint Mobile can offer you premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. All the plans come with unlimited talk and text and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network and you can choose from 3, 6 or 12-month plans. Say goodbye to your monthly phone bills. So to get your wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com/hpp. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com/hpp. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Today's episode of High Performance is in partnership with MindLift, and many of you may have heard already that in 2023, I decided to give MindLift a go, the neuroscience-based personalised brain trainer to improve your focus and your relaxation. So I popped on the headband, I downloaded the MindLift app and connected to my own personal neuro coach. And look, because of my job as a podcaster, I get to experience so many different things that people tell me are going to benefit my life. And in all honesty, once I started using MindLift, I just found that I felt sharper, my focus was better. And I think something else that you can't necessarily feel is that it offers an improvement for overall brain health. I also was really reassured by the fact that this is trusted by clinicians around the world. I know for a fact it's used by top athletes. I've spoken to some of them about how much they love it. And the fact that the whole experience is customised by your own neuro coach, 
I think just makes it really smart. So if you want to get involved and you're interested, now is the time with a $40 discount exclusively for you. And if you want to get $40 off your first subscription, just go to mindlift.com slash highperformance. That's M-Y-N-D-L-I-F-T dot com slash highperformance. So when you work, say, if we talk about a sporting environment, but it's equally applicable in business or, or, or in a classroom, when you're working with a leader, what kind of techniques would you encourage a leader to maybe think about or consider adopting that encourage people to show up as they are rather than to wear that mask? I think the first thing is starting with themselves, right? So you can't, you can't ask anybody else to um, stand in their authentic self if, if you're not willing to do it as well. And for leaders, coaches, captains, anybody, it, that's, you know, you guys have to do that on the podcast all the time. You, you know, you're trying to build a quick engagement, not just an engagement, a quick relationship. So the more open and honest and vulnerable and real you are, the more you will get from your guest. And I think that's the same for leaders all over the place too. It's like, can you first see where you're performing a bit and you're, you're worried about not being good enough? And can you let a little bit more of you into the room? And it, it really doesn't mean expose or you've got to tell them about your kids at the weekend or whatever else. It means engagement. It means eye contact. It means physical presence. It means if you're going to inquire how somebody is, mean it, ask, listen, respond. You know, it, it's like a type of intimacy. I, I, I've made this point before, but um, we think about intimacy as something that just happens in really close relationships, um, you know, partnerships or families, right? Intimacy for me is a missing ingredient in our social lives, our professional lives. You know, as we've moved away from community, intimacy, we, we kind of like feel a bit awkward about it. But it really just means showing up as you and engaging and relating. Imagine the power of that. This is very interesting because I, I think when, when I knew you were coming on the, on the podcast, Pippa, and I was thinking about sort of fear and shame and anxiety and things, I saw it as bad because it gives people sweaty palms and it makes them say no to social events or it brings them a stress they don't need. But actually just from having this conversation, the realisation for me is that it basically strips you of your individuality, doesn't it? Because you have a fear to be you, to say what you really think. And and then when you just hide away and you shrink and you disappear a bit and you just kind of try and act like everyone else and no one notices, what's the point? Because your incredible uniqueness is just gone, isn't it? And that's actually what fear and anxiety and shame does for people. It removes that opportunity to live a life of of real purpose because you've stopped being who, who you really are. And joy, you know, that's, it's like, it steals joy more than anything, I think. And, and, you know, there's this weird paradox because it does strip us of our individuality, but it also strips us of our commonality. You know, you've got that, that extraordinary, wonderful potential in you and your, what's that, what's that quote? You know, personally, I'm a, Floors stitched together with good intention, something like <laughs> nice. that, you know, and so are we, that's yeah. the same for all of us. You know, we, we've got both. We've got extraordinary potential and we're a bunch of mess and flaws and that's okay. That's what we are. 
And, you know, we can see that in ourselves and own it. And we can see that in the other. And in doing that, fear and hate get turned down. And I think that's just so powerful for performance in any way that you describe performance. There's a question then that really sort of resonates with me, Pippa, because like yourself, I've been lucky enough to, say, work in sporting environments where you go in and, like, often it's quite macho in some of these environments. And one of the terms that I despise is when people excuse behaviour as banter. Like, Mm. I have a throwaway remark that I often say banter is often the defence of the dickhead, that it's often an excuse for of people pretending it's humour when actually there's a barbed edge to it. Mm. And part of the reason I feel strongly about it is because I think it often strips people of their individuality. People behave in a uniform way so they don't stand out on and risk that ridicule. How would you encourage anyone listening to this then to challenge that kind of culture where uniformity or stripping people of of their sense of uniqueness is endemic. It's such a great point to to bring up. I agree with you about banter. There's a a real difference between wit and fun, you know, but banter is quite often used at somebody else's cost. To exclude rather than to to include. To exclude rather than to include, exactly. It's it's got a a barbed edge, as you say. Um, And, you know, you describe it as a defence of the dickhead, and I would say it's a defence of the fearful. You know, I think people... That's more charitable than like yours. You know, it's it's powerful too. It's like the uh, people who don't feel that comfortable in their skin need a shield. And sometimes that shield is in making the other person feel uh, more conforming or, or smaller or sharing the fear, basically. That cr- creates a shield, but it's really, really damaging. And in terms of performance, whether we're talking about that in an office setting or in a, a team setting, all that does is lower people's willingness to take a risk. And what does extreme elite performance require? Risk. Yep. You have to be vulnerable enough to put yourself out there. And every time there is a culture of conformity, for me, it's impoverishing it, it really strips away people's ability to take that risk, to stand up. You know, you would have read in the book, the Richmond Tigers, AFL, yeah. their Triple H exercise, which actually came from Atlanta Falcons, NFL, which was like stand, being able to stand up and say, to tell a story of a hero hardship and highlight in their own life. And, you know, for all these, these guys had endured and tolerated and the whole world looks at them as brave, Doing that where it was personally vulnerable was probably the biggest breakthrough piece that they could have that allowed them to go into a different zone where they dropped fear, you know, and they raised intimacy. And, and things like that, that's like taking a risk. That's non-conforming. And it's so powerful. But I, I agree with your point on banter. So would you tell us a little bit more around that hero hardship and highlight exercise? Because I'm sure there'll be teachers or leaders here that'll be thinking that might be a really good way of starting to create that uh, the culture that they want. Would you tell us a little bit around how you introduced it and how you got it embedded into Richmond? I, I actually didn't do it in Richmond. Shane McCurry um, did it in Richmond. It was after my time there, but it's such a clean example of a turning point for them. 
the way that it's um, introduced is that it's a, an exercise in vulnerability. It's an exercise in getting to know each other so that the force of the bond between the team is stronger. So, you know, how do you really play for another person or support another person if you don't know them? You don't know them outside of their number or their role or whatever else. And it doesn't have to be Triple H, but the idea is of a, a group, in that case, 40-something guys, um, a group each taking a turn over a season to come to the front of the room with everybody sitting and listening and tell a story. So that Triple H is really just an anchor for the storytelling of, you know, the hero in your life, the hardship and the highlight. And almost everybody... Um, tells a personal story. It'll be about a grandma or, or, or a person who's meant everything to them or a moment where they felt really small and overcame. Or, and it's, it's humbling. It really introduces humility. Um, and the bond that comes out of doing that, of like really seeing the person behind the shirt or the human being behind the role or the title is so um, rich and I tell you what, those people who go and do it are more terrified of doing that because it feels personally exposing outside of the performance of your role um, than, than anything. But the breakthrough in richness of engagement and in willingness to really be there for that human being is huge. And so, you know, it's, it's an exercise that anybody can do. When I go into work with the team for example and you'll ask them how much time they spend on hard skills versus what you might characterize as the softer skills such as creating vulnerability and working on culture i've yet to meet a high performing team that wouldn't give you a 30 to 70 percent split in terms of where they think their their performance lies that 30 percent is the technical stuff and 70 percent of it is almost those intangibles and yet when you go and look at their diary for the month ahead 90% of it is spent doing the hard stuff and and it's not always prioritized the softer things what's been your experiences of that paper and how have you managed to shift the dial so it's a fairer proportion it's a really great point because it takes a massive amount of energy to prioritize it. The leader's priority on it is everything. But the thing about the soft skills, I hate it when, the, when we refer to it that way, but it, you know what I mean, the, the less tangible skills, is that it's not necessarily huge pieces of time. Technical tasks, technical skill build takes more physical time or clock time, but is energy and priority. You know, so the, the cultural inputs might take 30 minutes of the day, uh, you know, and it, it's never going to look balanced in terms of the diary, but it's the, it's the um, leadership prioritization and energy for that. Like, what is the thing that you will measure at the end of the day? And, and you know, do you have a, an accountable kind of culture where that's the thing you'll allow to slide off the sheet? Because it's always the hardest stuff as well. But, you know, the sustainable, te the teams who've done it sustainably, I don't know, I, um, I follow Golden State Warriors and watching Clay Thompson come back last night after, you know, after two years where his teammates were so culturally connected to him and so encouraging, you know, there was a sense of sort of community around that. And you know that they have built that over years and years and years. Their values include joy. They still have to put all of the blood, sweat and tears into the technical, physical, material aspects of being that good. 
but they never let the culture piece slide off the to-do list. Yeah, never in any other business. Yeah. Yeah. And same for any other business, yeah. Um, I think that that's the truth question to the leader. Are you genuinely invested in the kind of culture that will enable your people? Can you be vulnerable within that? Can you manage fear within that? Will you manage your own fear to show up and do it every day? There's two words, Pippa, I want to discuss with you, love and soulfulness. Um, you use them a lot in your book when you talk about high performance. And mm. we've recorded almost 100 episodes now of this podcast um, with high performers. And I don't think love or soulfulness is something that any of them have mentioned at the end when we always say, what are your three non-negotiables <laughs> for high performance? So why are love and soulfulness so important to you? Well, I think that we have kind of... Um, industrialized ourselves a little bit when we think about work or, or performance of any kind. And we've, it's almost like we've said, we'll leave all of that stuff for afterwards or for home or whatever. But actually it's what makes up our, our integrity as human beings. It's, it's what motivates us more than anything else. Like anybody who says, you know, football, let's say, isn't full of love or emotion. It's like they're not watching very closely. <laughs> it might not be the presentation of it, but it's, it's what we are fundamentally. It's what we are. And, so, you know, soulfulness, a care of the soul, as I think of it, uh, is allowing us to be fully human in the pursuit of those incredible goals, the, the pursuit of the kind of life that we'll be happy with at, at stumps and, and that's if we try and make it more pedestrian colder more formal more industrialized more engineered and we leave out that stuff we're working with half of what a human being is and if we want to find real excellence surely we have to work with the whole thing i feel i should have paid you a fee for this you know pippa because I, I feel like all of the little things in my life whether it's moving the energy in a <laughs> different direction it. whether it's <laughs> You know, distracting my daughter when she's worried about the dog, whether it's remembering the importance of, you know, personal relationships or just accepting that sometimes we feel this anxiety and actually we put a label on that it's bad. But if it isn't actually bad for us, is it a problem? I think all of these things are so helpful for people, certainly been very helpful for me. So we're now going to move on to our quick fire questions. Um, so our, the first one is, what are the three non-negotiable behaviors when it comes to fear that you and the people around you have to buy into? Um, I think non-negotiable behaviors around fear would be about uh, pausing and resetting, resetting ego, actually. You know, um, can I, can I step, can I get back in the moment and actually notice what's going on? Isn't, you know, which is an ego reset. That's, that's number one. Second is remember the love and care and the third is boundaries. So, you know, um, is this mine to worry about? Is this mine to fix? Uh, is this fear part of today or is it ancient or project projected into tomorrow? You know, um, I think, yeah, boundaries, love and care and reset the ego. If you could go back to one period of your life, Pippa, what would that be and why? I wouldn't go back. You know, that's, that's to Jake's point earlier about being in the day. Um, you know, I've, I've had a rich mix of human experiences that have been both so much more than I could have ever hoped for and so uh, extraordinary and, and also a struggle at times. But today's today and I'm very grateful for today and my focus is here. So a lot of people who've 
suffered personal loss and personal tragedy would choose to maybe go back to a point where you could spend time with your brother who I know you know took his own life how are you able and why are you able to be so accepting of of maybe the things that have happened and, and not want to go back to that time because as painful as that was and you know there's many more people than me with situations of, of pain that are similar there is no value for me in today in uh, regret and distress from there. That's 14 years ago for me now. And, you know, I think that to um, have him in my heart and keep him close in memory for the good, the bad, the ugly, um, and, and as real as I can is a better cherishing of him um, and a better cherishing of me too, so that I'm not lost to regret or what might have been, and especially on something that I just cannot control. So, you know, I, I would rather have my love and energy in now. Wow, that's, that's lovely and powerful. Um, Pippa, would you give a, a book, a podcast, or a TV series that you would recommend to our guests to, to read, watch, or listen to? Um, obviously, you can mention your own book if you wish. Yeah, the, the other book that I've really enjoyed over the last few years and it's been sort of um, uh, really important for me is a book by David Brooks called Second Mountain. Um, and it's about sort of how you want to live the second half of your life. Um, like once you get through that idea of what we ought to be, then then how will we, we um, live the second half? Yeah, I really enjoyed that. And the final question, Pippa, is can you offer us one golden rule for people to, uh, that you would suggest that people can live a high-performance life? I would say that the results are just an outcome and they're not your worth. Brilliant. Um, if you would like to learn more about Pippa's work or understand a bit more um, about the things that she's discussed on this podcast, then you can get your hands on her brilliant book, Fear Less, How to Win Your Way in Work and Life, available from, from all good book outlets. Um, Pippa, can I just say a huge thanks on behalf of myself and Damien, but more than that, the entire community of high performance who've just sat and listened to a conversation like this, which is really carefully considered. It comes from a place of obviously really wanting to help other people, you know, great empathy, great understanding of the human mind and the human being and the fact that we are flawed, not flawless, and perhaps that's okay. So thank you ever so much for your time. Thank you. It's been a great conversation and I love what you guys are doing. So keep up the good work. Damien. Jake. That was definitely, for me, transformational about what for a start, what fear represents, I never had this kind of mindset that it was that fear is an energy and all you need to do is, or one of the things you need to do is try and divert the energy somewhere else. I always believed it was like calm down, relax, sit still, have a cup of tea. And it was quite eye-opening for me when people says, well, that doesn't necessarily work for people all the time. Sometimes you just need to divert the energy somewhere else. Yeah, I think those three-step method that Pippa described of see, face, replace is really effective. I think sometimes just to acknowledge that we feel afraid and then face it and work out, well, what is it that is really uh, causing that anxiety here and then have a different story around it is uh, is really effective. And also th what she said about being individuals, being ourselves, which is creating an environment where people can be themselves, where if they have got issues or they feel vulnerable or they feel anxious, they can share those. But it's a reminder that living in that constant worry about shame or something bad around the corner 
Like we don't even see how much it impacts our lives because we've got no idea how we would be living if we were able to be free and to, to sense joy, as she talked about. Yeah, like something that was quite profound for me that I think Pippa reinforced there was that a couple of years ago, I, I, I remember somebody saying to me when uh, I was having a period of real anxiety that they said, you are enough. And I think those three words of you are enough were really quite powerful of saying, you don't have to be somebody that you're not. You don't have to pretend that you're not afraid. Sometimes just accepting that what Pippa said, we're all in our glorious technicolor, just where we stand, we are enough. And I think for anyone listening to this, if they're the three words that they can take away and apply and feel that Pippa's reinforced that message, it then allows them to live a life on their terms, not on somebody else's or society's definition. And we now come to the part of the episode that is often a highlight for Damien and I when we get to talk to you, the people that listen to High Performance. And it's a pleasure to welcome Hayley to the podcast. Hi, Hayley. Hello. So, Hayley, you came to see us in Birmingham on our, uh, on our live podcast tour, right? That's right. Yes, I did. My husband and I came along. Um, yeah, to see you, it was really good. We had a really good night. What was your big takeaway? Do you know what? First of all, I um, couldn't believe how many men were there versus women. <laughs> the way I noticed it was a queue to the toilets. <laughs> there was no queue for the ladies, um, but a massive queue for the men. Um, <laughs> so that was one takeaway, I think, just because I wasn't expecting it. So what advice would you give to any women that may be listening to this, Hayley, that are considering coming along to any of the shows? Oh, to do it, I honestly had such a good evening. And it also sort of re-inspired lots of conversations that my husband and I are having about wanting to start our own business one day and thinking about what that could look like and um, time together that isn't talking about our children or talking about um, the school run or the day you know it's actually time where we could dream a bit together um, but I also was sitting there thinking I'd love to be here with my friends you know I, I've got incredible women in my life and most of my really close friends do run their own businesses they're sole, you know sole traders self-employed and I think they would have taken a lot from it but I think my husband has spent about six months convincing me to listen to the high performance podcast and I think we resist it a bit more. We don't necessarily give ourselves the time to do it. And I started doing it on my runs. So it was something I was already doing. Um, and I could, you know, almost give myself the opportunity to listen to it because I was already out running anyway. Um, so, yeah, I'd say to women, go, get inspired, learn. And there's so much actually, and you guys talk about it a lot, about being parents and so much in high performance that you can take at home anyway in all sort of aspects of your life. I love it. Um, just to be clear to people, you're the managing director of the Global Fund for Children. You're also a mum of two girls. Um, and you, you sent us a message, as you say, and you said that during the pandemic, the organisation grew 150% globally, 460% growth in the UK, which is incredible. And you said you believe the inspiration you gained from high performance kept you going in the most difficult times. Can you explain what that inspiration was and anything that other people can learn from that? Of course, yeah. So I think I think it's back to the whole, it's really simple. It is simple to, you know, the things to be successful is if you have the basics in place. And, it, you know, you guys always talk about world-class basics. And I think for me, it was listening to other people who genuinely have come from nothing, 
like Susie Ma or, you know, even the recent one with Bear Grylls where he talked about courage in the quiet moments. I loved that. I really took hold of that because I think there's so much courage in the quiet moments, especially during the pandemic. You know, for my organisation, um, we didn't know if we were going to make it. You know, we got to at the end of June 2020 and we'd had our worst year for a long time. And then the end, then I remember one of my board members saying to me, there's going to be opportunity. This is a really dark time, but there's going to be opportunity and you're going to have the opportunity to help even more people as a result of it. And then listening to the High Performance Podcast and listening to your incredible guests talk about the moments where they saw opportunity even when it was the darkest time or the most traumatic time for them like Jo Malone like how amazing is she and she turned around just a horrendous time for anybody in their life into you know an incredible opportunity and the desire to keep going and to survive so I think that's why I found so much inspiration from it you know and I'm still working my way through all 101 episodes however many it is now but um, I think it's because every week I'm trying to keep up to date with them now and there's always and I think the common theme as well around sacrifice you know high performance there's so many of the footballers that you've spoken to who I thought were really so removed from me in my everyday life but you know Eric Dyer talking about sacrifice you have to sacrifice practice keeping going and I think that you can relate it so much to any aspect of your life and I think that's why I got so much inspiration during lockdown when we were separated from people and you really wanted to try and connect and still grow and the podcast gave me incredible space to do that. Wonderful listen Hayley it means the world to us to hear that because the reason for us doing this podcast is about having impact. And, you know, as you mentioned, Susie Ma, their infinite purpose is one of her big things. And the infinite purpose for this podcast is to reach more people around the world every day to get them closer to a high performance life. And it's people like you sharing the podcast, talking about it, passing it on, just encouraging people to listen to it. And then it opens their minds to all of the incredible guests that we've had on the 100 plus episodes so far. So from all of us on the team, thank you so much for sharing with us today. But more than that, thank you for realising the power that you have to pass this podcast on to other people and impacting their lives for good. No problem. Thank you. What a pleasure to speak to Hayley and get her feedback on how high performance has helped her. Just a reminder, if you can, please share this podcast, put it on your social media, um, share it at work, pop it in a WhatsApp group, talk about it, discuss it, because that is what makes the difference for us. Um, loads of feedback, actually, as well from recent episodes. Uh, Lee Child was really interesting, wasn't he? The author of the Reacher books. Carl on Instagram says, I love this episode and how Lee brought so much of his learning back to his roots growing up in Birmingham. Our environment shaped us in ways we don't always realize very true Carl um, at the end of this week uh, it's going to be an exciting week on Friday we are going to be live in Edinburgh with Steve Clark the Scotland manager ahead of a big playoff match for the World Cup for the Scotland national team if you want to come along there are a few tickets left Friday night Queen's Hall Edinburgh Lots of feedback from our tour in Manchester. Um, thank you for creating a platform that allows others to understand they don't have to be special to achieve their goals. Something that I think I've known for so long, but no one ever believes you. Um, I love the Tempest 2, someone says, who came to Manchester. The Tempest 2 are two guys who have just decided to be explorers with no previous knowledge or understanding of what it takes. And that's really what high performance is all about, right? Being brave enough to go for it. Uh, great show in Manchester. You may not be changing lives, but you're showing others they can. Keep planting those seeds, says Christopher. And that really was the way that I introduced the High Performance Live show in Manchester last week, was that we get lots of messages from people saying, uh, your podcast changed my life. 
and you're all wrong. This podcast has changed nobody's life. This podcast, as I explained to Jason, who was obviously in the audience in, uh, in Manchester and Christopher and many other people, is that you've changed your own lives. All we've done is give you the opportunity to really think and see the world in a different way. And finally, a message from Ray, who says, I'll be starting a new business soon. <sighs> Good luck, Ray. Uh, and frankly, I need a bit of guidance. Why do I always see other people's anxiety as a means of slowing down or scuppering or derailing a process? It is genuinely a contentious issue I'm dealing with, as it is hindering performance. But it's also something I've identified recently while I try to understand it and know where it comes from. But I don't seem to have a solution for it. I think that the answer here, Ray, is... You've already found it in your message when you say, I've identified recently that I need to understand it. I think all too often in life we walk around with opinion rather than empathy. Everyone has an opinion about everyone else's lives. But that's a useless form of knowledge. The highest form of knowledge that we can possibly display is empathy. So what you need to do, Ray, is sit down with your colleagues who are suffering with anxiety or nerves or worrying about how your new business is going to go and have a really honest conversation with them. Try and understand more about them, more about the process that they've been through. Because what you will find when you understand them better, they will understand you better. They will feel more supported. You'll find ways of working with them. I think what we can't do is see anxiety as a way of derailing or slowing down a business. Anxiety for a lot of people is something they have to exist with, they have to push through, and the two can go hand in hand. Because I have anxious people in my life. I've had periods in my life where I've suffered with real anxiety. But those are some of the periods in my life where, strangely, I've been at my happiest or I've achieved the most. So I think that understanding that for some people living with anxiety is a thing. And that you can still run a successful business with those people bringing their amazing skills and knowledge to that business. While still supporting their anxiety and their nerves. And I think finally, Ray, you know, we almost realise that living with anxiety is like being followed by this little voice all the time. It knows all your insecurities. It loves to use them against you all the time. For you, though, empathy is seeing with the eyes of that person, listening with the ears of that person, feeling with the heart of that person. And I think the key with showing empathy for another person is you're then giving them permission to be themselves. They will find that hugely liberating. They will be the kind of people that you want to go on that journey with you. And just remember, really, that as important as this business is, and I wish you all the luck in the world with your estate agency business, actually, I don't think anything is more important than empathy for another human being's suffering or issues. Not career, not wealth, not status. I think if we're going to live a life of dignity, one of the key things for us is to feel for each other and look after each other. And you will find an incredible, amazing value in the people that you decide to stand alongside and support when times are hard. Because trust me, mate, they will be with you when times are tough. And none of us know when we're going to be the ones that need other people's empathy and understanding with our own anxieties and issues and concerns. But thanks so much for reaching out. And I do hope that is helpful. And just explore, mate. Get those people in a room, explore with them, speak to them, go on a journey with them. You can't go too far wrong. Thank you as always, everyone, for listening to today's High Performance Podcast. Don't forget, you can also check us out on YouTube. If you want to watch the interviews, not just listen to them, find our YouTube channel. There's some great content on there as well. Check out thehighperformancepodcast.com. Have a brilliant week. Thanks to Finn Ryan, to Will, to Hannah, to Eve, to Gemma, to everyone involved in the High Performance Podcast. Have a really great day. See loads of you on Friday night in Edinburgh. And remember, there is no secret. It is all there for you. 
be your own biggest cheerleader, make world-class basics your calling card, and remember, you deserve them. Listen, be kind to yourselves. See you next week. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.